going to hand over straight to you. Go for it. Morning, friends. So lovely to see you. It's especially lovely to have my whole family uh, in the service at one go. And so Jess, my eldest daughter, is down from Pretoria, and uh, lovely to have you with us this morning, my special girl. And uh, if you don't know me, my name is Brendan, and uh, this is my lovely wife, Tash. Uh, We're relatively new to Durbanville, and you might say, well, when will you stop saying that? And um, maybe uh, when we change our number plates. Maybe that would be the move it from the Eastern Cape Mighty Elephants to... uh, uh, to see why. I think it's see why, hey? It come from Belleville Af. Do you want to say welcome to you, especially if uh, you're visiting with us? We want to say welcome to you if you're online. We want to say welcome if you're exploring the Christian faith. If you're trying to find more about Jesus, we want to say welcome. And if you um, have perhaps found yourself distanced from God, uh, we want to say welcome. And we trust that this uh, message serves you well this morning. Shall we pray? Father, I lift up every single person here this morning, uh, both in the auditorium and at home. And I pray that your word, not my word, your word, would encounter us, Lord, through our busy hearts, through our tired hearts, through our anxious hearts, through our faithful hearts, through our hard hearts, through our distracted hearts, I pray that we would encounter you in Jesus' name. Amen. We've come to the last of our series in Exodus. And then just to say, moving forward, there will be um, two standalone messages and then Rigby Wallace and then into a Christmas series. So that's the way going ahead. And uh, it's my job to wrap up, uh, I think, uh, an 11-week series. And then just coincidentally, um, this week, I happened to catch the end of the Ridley Scott movie of Exodus. It wasn't planned. I just saw it, and I clicked on it, and it was just the last maybe 20 minutes. And I don't know if you've seen that movie, but it was pretty magnificent to see what was going on, because I grew up with flannel graphs. In other words, it's like this, for you young guys, it's like this material, and then you stick other material on the material to show a river and a little basket to show Moses, and you know, it looks a bit fairy taleish. And now I see Ridley Scott with hundreds of thousands of people leaving Egypt, and then them coming to the Red Sea, and God you know, opening a way, and the Pharaoh's army is chasing and chariots, and the Israelites are terrified, and it's magnificent. So much better than flannel graphs. And then they get to the other side, and the Egyptians, you know, are destroyed, and that's that. That's the end of the movie. So according to Ridley Scott, or his reads, on the story of Exodus, is the main part of the story is that the Israelites are liberated from slavery into freedom. In other words, they are free, end of story, let's celebrate. But there's this other part of Exodus that uh, he just misses out. 
and sometimes we do too. And it's called the tabernacle. The story of Exodus does not end in liberation. It ends with this somewhat strange thing called the tabernacle. And so let's read Exodus 40 verse 16. This Moses did according to all that the Lord had commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year of the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of the meeting and on the north side of the table, outside, north side of the tabernacle, outside the veil, and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of the meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of the meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle and set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of the meeting and offered it on the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of the meeting and the altar and he put water in it for washing with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. And um, when I read this, my brain gets a bit fuzzy. Uh, I've, you know, I've, the one thing the educational psychologist said to me, Brendan, stay away from engineering. Anything kind of analytical, that, you know, please stay away for our safety. And so I don't think like this. I, I kind of, I love narrative stories. This thing just kind of boggles me. So this is for the few who are like me. I like pictures. And so I'm just going to give you a picture because uh, there could be a great possibility that you're saying to yourself, hey, brilliant, I love all the details, but what relevance does it have to my life? And so I want to allow us to, or to allow two men to walk you through the tabernacle. And as uh, I'm going to take you almost like on a tourist guide, uh, these men to take you through, and I'm trusting as they take you through, you'll be greatly encouraged. And the first uh, man is Moses. And so uh, if we can have the first picture up, uh, we see something of uh, the tabernacle of uh, Israelites camped around side. There was this curtain, uh, uh, the outer courts that created this tabernacle or dwelling place. And uh, Moses takes you into that curtain where uh, everyone is allowed. And um, you're into the courtyard. And the first thing that you will encounter, although it's not really clear, is this, what looks like a brown box. It's a bronze altar. And it is a place for animals to be sacrificed. And on the corner of each of the, 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 the altar are horns. And you would bring an animal that is pure, that is spotless, without blemish, perfect, in other words. And um, it would be a sacrifice or an offering. If it was a sacrifice, 
you would put your hand on that animal, and in a sense, that animal would become a substitute for your sin. And then the priest would take that animal, and that animal would be slaughtered and uh, placed on the altar, and fire would consume it, and the priest would take the blood and put it on the altar and on the horns. And you would know as an Israelite that uh, something is actually, it is a transaction that's happened. You did something wrong, and in place something died. Um, And so that would be the bronze altar. You would know that only uh, the death of this animal could attain, could atone for your sins. The second one that you would encounter is um, the bronze basin. So you would walk a little bit further, and uh, Moses would say to you, if you had to say, what is this for? He'd say, for the cleansing of the priests. They would wash their hands, and they would wash their feet as a symbol that you cannot approach God in an unclean way way. And uh, then you, further on, you would see this actual tent. It had a cover, and you would ask Moses, what's this? And he would say, it's the tent of the meeting where we get to encounter God. But he would have to say, I can only tell you about it. I can tell you what's inside, but I cannot take you in. That's reserved for the priests. And if you had to go in, and we can look at the next picture, on your left-hand side, you will see a, um, a lampstand. And uh, that lampstand, Moses would tell you, re- speaks to the actual God being the light, God enabling us to see him. To um, uh, my right I'm losing track on which side it is for, for you, is the bread of the pre- presence where freshly break bread would be. And that would symbolize that God is our provider, that even in the place where it's impossible to find provision, God is a provider. And then finally, before this very thick curtain is an altar of incense, and Moses would tell you, well, the altar of incense is, symbolizes prayers issued on Israelites' behalf. Moses would then say, well, maybe you would ask, well, what lies behind that curtain? And Moses would say, the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, Moses would tell you that there lies the Ark of the Covenant. And um, it was a box with the Ten Commandments in, pointing to where God's presence dwells. And on the top of that Ark would be the mercy seat where the high priest would once a year go in and atone for the sins of Israel. So if you were walking through with Moses and you kind of got to where you could go to, what question would you ask him? What question, if you were with Moses, what question would you ask him? I would ask if I was with Moses, is, these are amazingly beautiful things you've told me about but what's the real purpose? What's, I, I get the symbolism, but what's the purpose? And Moses would tell me, and he would tell you, that the real purpose of the tabernacle is for God to clearly show that he wants to dwell with us. Because God is perfect and holy, he wants to make a way for sinful men and women to approach him and to experience his glory. We read on in the story 
in Exodus 40, verse 32, it says, when they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses and they erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of the meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of the meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So I grew up in um, a Presbyterian church that became independent, charismatic, and um, there often used to be this prayer, Lord, we long for your glory. We long for your glory. And what that would generally mean, or at least I understood as a young teenager, would be we long as we worship you on Sunday to feel your presence. We long for that kind of just that sense that you are near. But I'm not sure if that's all or has the full compass of what glory means. And uh, Moses says, Lord, I want to I, I I know your glory. I want to see your glory. And in Exodus 34, um, a little bit earlier, God does show him his glory. And let's have a, just have a quick look at what glory means to our king. It says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What does it mean to experience the glory of God? In this case, it's to experience God's character and His nature, that God is merciful, He's gracious, He's slow to anger, He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and He keeps steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and sin. The purpose of the tabernacle is that the people of Israel would know the glory of God, or they would know the nature of God, or they would know the person of God, and they would experience God as kind, as gracious, as slow to anger. And so what's the gospel according to Moses? What's the good news or the story of the whole story of Exodus? Is that God is revealing that he desires to rescue a nation so that he can be with them and show his nature to them. For Israel, for us, the tabernacle is a signpost towards God. And as the Israelites experience the presence of God, as they experience the glory where people can't even walk walk in, they stand in wonder at the magnificence of God, and their only response is, we worship you. We make your name great. And so worship is a response to the presence of God. And so you might ask, what's the purpose of the tabernacle? And I've just put it into a little circle. It's to enable the Israelites to worship God and enjoy Him forever. That line might be familiar to you. But the purpose of the tabernacle is to enable the Israelites to worship God and enjoy Him forever. While Moses, thanks for that tour, didn't quite get everything, wasn't allowed in, 
but thanks anyway. And uh, what is amazing, Lord Moses, when the glory came, uh, that must have transformed your nation. That must have transformed them into a people who loved to be found in your presence, who loved to obey God. Uh, it must have been completely transforming. What was it like to see the transforming power? And Moses would go, not that great. Because the people of Israel, under pressure, kept not wanting to go to the place of meeting, but to build their own tent. To build their own tent where they could sort out their pressures. And so you might be saying, well, Brendan, this is really fairly interesting, if you can't. But you might say, it has no meaning to me today. And I want to say that uh, um, it's a lot closer than what we think. And we too have built a tent. Tim Keller says that everyone worships. It's not a case of whether we worship or don't worship. It's a case of what we worship. And I want to say, and I want to present to you as, the, as a possible temple or tent where we like to worship family of Durbanville. And uh, I've got a little picture to show you our temple. It is called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. Some of you might have heard it. It's a, uh, a philosopher came up and said, listen, we've got needs, things that are really important to us. And they start off with basic needs and they go up, 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 and our role is to try and get to the top. If you, That's a very... I think poor summary of Maslow, but I'm doing the best that I can. Uh, Maslow says we all worship. He says we all give value and worth to something. We start off with that we all love to have our basic needs met. We love to be secure physically and financially. We love to belong, to give and receive love. We all long to be noticed and appreciated and thought well of. And then finally the top the thing that he says we all long for, we all long to make a success and have significance in our lives. So, there's nothing wrong with these needs. The only problem is when we try and attain these needs outside of God and His ways. In other words, when they're not centered around God's presence, His leadership, and His provision. And I think under pressure, I know I am, and perhaps you are too, we just like the Israelites... We reject God and His presence and His ways in favor for finding our own ways and our own abilities or someone else to help them or to help us. You're saying, no way, Brenda, not me. Let me give some examples. Under financial pressure is your first resort, your first action under financial pressure to trust God and to allow the peace of God to enter into your heart? Or do you lean into worry and anxiety and try and make a plan in your own strength? When your career path is blocked, for whatever reason, are you willing to wait for God to lead you, or do you consistently and continuously think of how you can make a plan and say to yourself, God helps those who help themselves? When someone criticizes you unfairly, 
Are you filled with rage? Do you take a long time to forgive? And I think Maslow would say that you, just like me, often build our own temple. And to desire these things is not wrong. It's wonderful. But when that desire consumes you, it drives you, and when you're doing well, you feel good, and when, you feel, when you're not doing well, you feel bad, chances are you're worshiping in the wrong place. So C.S. Lewis, an author, if you haven't read him, of the Narnia tales and some other great books, says, the problem is not that we have desires. The problem is that we put them in the wrong place and they're too low. He says, we desire after things that are so small when actually we should be desiring the magnificence of the glory of God. He's saying, C.S. Lewis is saying, you build your own tent, you worship in your own tent because you think it can bring greater joy than worshiping in God's tent. And he says, boy, are you aiming low. And the second person that I'd like to walk us through the tent is Jesus. And there's quite a lot of scripture that we're going through, but I think it's healthy. And so I love the name of Jesus because another name that he has given is Emmanuel, God with us. And so the very essence of the tabernacle is God to show that he wants to be with his people. And Jesus comes and says, my name is Emmanuel, God with us. And we're starting to get a little bit of a picture of who Jesus is. And so Jesus, if you would allow him to take you by the hand and walk you through. Don't worry, guys, it's cool. He can take you by the hand and walk you through into that first courtyard and you come to the bronze altar and he would say, let me tell you about the bronze altar. Well, let me tell you about what others have said about me. John, in 1 John 29, says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this is what Peter says to me. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. This is what the scriptures say about Jesus as he walks through. He says, before the world was created, God intended that the sacrifice of the Israelites, that killing of a perfect lamb was never going to be enough. Uh, it was always pointing towards me, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I'm the one who lays on down on the altar. It's my blood who gets put on the, um, uh, you know, on the horns. And as you put your faith in me, as you put your hand on me, there is a substitution that happens. And that your sin is passed on to me. And that you can be forgiven. Jesus would say, I am the bronze altar. We come to the bronze basin. And he, he takes you and he says, this is what John says about me. 1 John 1 verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. He, Jesus would say, 
Water will never do. Water is just symbolic. It could never take away the sins. My blood will wash you perfectly. I am the bronze basin. And then he takes you to the holy place and you go, hey, Moses said, no go. What's the deal? And Jesus says, you're welcome in this place. And he comes to the lampstand. And John says about him, and Jesus said, spoke to them saying, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of the life. And the bread Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And the altar of incense, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And as Jesus takes you into the holy place, he would say, I'm the light. Through me, you can able to see the nature and the character of God. I'm the bread. I will always provide for you. In me, your provision will never run out. And I'm the one who prays for you. This incense that was going up was always symbolic. I'm the one who intercedes for you. I'm the fulfillment of the holy place. And uh, as we get to the curtain that is thick, uh, Jesus says this, or says this about him, and Jesus cries out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. And so Jesus would say, because of what I've done, you are most welcome to come into the place where the presence of God dwells. The place that no one was ever allowed except for a high priest once a year. And now you are welcome, not on your basis on what you have done or your good works, but because of me. I am both the priest and the sacrifice. And when you start to understand uh, the tabernacle, you will start to understand the New Testament a whole lot clearer because the writers are always talking in tabernacle language. So the Hebrews is just covered with tabernacle, tabernacle language. It says, you know, the Word of God says, you know, now, you know, approach because of what Jesus has done. You know, you can approach God with confidence, you know, because he's torn, torn the veil that was there. And as you enter into the Holy of Holies, you see the Word of God, the Ten Commandments. And Jesus was recorded about him. It says, And the Word of God became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we have seen this glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so Jesus says um, that word, it says, and the word of God dwelt. What John is using, he's using tabernacle language. He's saying, and the word of God tabernacled. It's the same thing. The word of God was made present. Jesus says, there was a tent, was a stone, but now it's me. 
as we point to the mercy seat, the place where sins are atoned for once a year, John writes, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus the Christ, our righteous one. He's an atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. And so I know that's been a lot of scripture, and um, it might have been fairly dry. That's okay. Um, But let's just reflect on what's happening. Jesus is saying that that tabernacle that Moses has built, which was to show Israel that God desires to be with his people and to reveal his nature to his people, to be the God who is kind, who is loving, who is slow to anger, who is a protector, who is provider, was always just a signpost to the real thing. And that is Jesus. And as, as I preach about this, I have to admit, it's actually difficult for me to understand. Because the Word of God says that now, We are the temple of God, and that His presence dwells within us. And if I look at my life, and I take the normity of of what was being said, that the glory of God come, and Moses couldn't even come in, and now that same glory dwells within me and within us as a community, and as the glory of God fell upon the tabernacle, so... Uh, the glory of God falls upon the early church. And uh, to this day, it falls upon us. And I have to say, Lord, there seems to be a gap between what I'm teaching and where I'm living. Yeah? That same thing. Because we can go, yes, I know, I know, no, that was nice. You know, a little bit dry, Brendan, but nice. You know, thanks so much for working so hard. But it's so weighty. What we're actually talking about here is that Moses says, you don't just come, you don't just come like how you want to come to God's presence. No, there is a way, and it's through sacrifice, and it's through cleansing, and as that's done, there's something of the presence of God dwelling, but not all of you can experience it close up, but now Jesus says, actually, you can experience the glory of God that I've poured out my spirit upon all Men, and that there's a new community that's being formed. It's a community of my spirit where my glory dwells. And I go, oh, Lord, boy, how far am I from that? And so there is a tendency within me to do two things. One is just to kind of just go, oh, well, you know, that was nice, but this is where we live. We just kind of, you know, just dumb down the weight of what we've just preached we fail to see the magnificence of what Jesus has just opened up. That's one way. Another way is just to keep trying hard. Okay, Lord, I want that. I can get there. Maybe another way is just to lose hope. It just seems so far removed from where we're actually living today that we wonder if we could really experience the presence of the living God. So we perhaps just lose hope. And I want to point us to the final tent. It's a beautiful tent. And it's found in Revelations 21. 
It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And so the whole like narrative of scripture is this. And the purpose and the good news of Exodus is this, is that God wants to be with you. With you, when I'm saying you, it's not just individual, it's a community. He wants to be with us. He wants to dwell with us. He wants to show us his nature, his glory, which is he's compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and merciful and patient and forgiving. He wants us to experience that. And this morning's message just reminds us that even though we know that we so often slip into just building our own little tents where we think we can receive what we really need. And the message just says, would Brendan and all of us stop building your own tent and move into the tent that God has created for us? The tent of his presence. It's a daily practice. Teach me, Lord, daily to experience your presence. And Lord, even when I don't, I've got this hope. I have this incredible hope that even when I fail and my marriage is struggling and under pressure, under finances, I, I lean into worry and anxiety and make a plan. And some of my relationships are strained. And my physical health doesn't seem to be doing, going so well at all. And I seem to be so far upon, far away from where the scriptures are pointing me today. And I want to give up. And this final scripture says, don't give up. There's a tent that's waiting for you. And if you've put your faith in God, you will never, ever be removed from the tent of the Father. Never. There is nothing that will take you out of the tent. That's why the Hebrew writer says, there is an anchor that's gone into the Holy of Holies. And that anchor is the strongest anchor you'll ever find. The, the chain will never rust. The chain will never corrode. And that anchor is sealed around your ankle. I'm just making that up, by the way. That's not in Scripture. But I'm trying to paint a picture. There is an anchor much bigger than the largest super tanker. You will never, if you've put your faith in Christ, if you've laid your hand upon Jesus, the atoning sacrifice, you'll never be separated from the tent. Never. And there is this... There's this future hope that we have, that this tent is not it, that there will come a day where God will dwell with his people. The original design of God is that he wants to be with you, that you would experience his glory. And so some clever theologian said, how do we sum up this in one line? What's the purpose of man? What's the Exodus story? What's the gospel? You were designed to worship God and enjoy him forever. Amen. I'm going to uh, celebrate this and what a great place to land it in, just in communion.
And uh, once again, you can either do this as um, an individual or within groups of three. It's always nice just to do it as a family. And I hope as I read the scripture, perhaps for the first time, you're starting to understand communion. Um, Sometimes if we do something over and over again, uh, it loses its true weight or significance. Um, does, every, does anyone ha- have communion, by the way? If you, if, you, if you don't have one, just raise your hand really high and we'll, we'll get it to you. Thank you, Musos. Only in COVID times do you hear this. <laughs> so, in traditional churches, there would be a table in front, and um, some of you might long for that. That's okay. And that table would be a symbol of the tabernacle table where the presence of God dwelt. It's symbolic, but it's beautiful. And on that table, there would be the communion elements, the bread and the wine. And the minister would say, you can't just approach this table in your own way. You can't just have communion. And sometimes we make that as a restriction. It's not a restriction. It's just, it's just God's ways. And they're always better than our ways. And so it's good just to read Scripture before we take communion because you'll see Scripture says that we are to examine our hearts, not because God is a religious tyrant. It's because it's symbolic of us approaching God, of thanking Him for His Son's body, and therefore we needed to do it in His ways. This is the message version Let me go over with you again exactly what goes on in the Lord's Supper and why it's so centrally important. I received my instructions from the Master himself and passed them on to you. The Master Jesus, on the night of his betrayal, took bread. Having given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he did the same thing with the cup. This cup is my blood, my new covenant with you. Every time you drink this cup, remember me. What you must suddenly realize is that every time you eat this bread and every time you drink this cup, you reenact the words and actions of the death of the master. You'll be drawn back into this meal again and again until the master returns. You must never let familiarity breed contempt. Anyone who eats the bread or drinks the cup of the master irreverently is like part of the crowd that jeered and spit on him at his death. Is that the kind of remembrance that you want to be a part of? Examine your motives, Dimnival family. Test your heart and come to this meal in holy awe. If you give no thought, or worse, you don't care about the broken body of the master when you eat and drink, you're running the risk of serious consequences. That's why so many of you are now listless and sick, and others have gone to the early grave. If we get this straight now, we don't have to be straightened out later. 
Better to be confronted by the master now than to face a fiery confrontation later. So my friends, when you come together to the Lord's table, be reverent and courteous with one another. If you're so hungry that it means you can't wait to be served, go home and take a, get a sandwich. But by no means risk returning to the meal into eating and drinking binge or a family squabble. It's a spiritual meal, a love feast. And so friends, as you just gather together and share the meal, here's a question. It's just a suggestion as to maybe just answer the, the question. In this area, I've built my own tent. Won't you help me, Jesus, to return to your tent? And let's do that, and then the musicians will lead us in worship. So you're welcome to break up into groups of twos and threes and, and celebrate communion together.